The Lord be with you. Thank you very much. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a gift to be with you on, on this blizzardy day. Uh, I know a bunch of you. I don't know all of you. I'd love to get to meet each of you. So if you'd be willing to email me, john, J-O-N, at pillarchurch.com. I'd love to buy you lunch or tea or take a walk sometime, hear your story, maybe share a little bit of mine. Now, the story today belongs to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, just, we're going to spend like several months in the Gospel of Mark. Just to put it into perspective for you, you will be traveling home from spring break before we're out of the Gospel of Mark. And I think we should just take a moment to think about spring break. <laughs> so there's four Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is sort of unique to himself. He's like, he's like kind of a gospel poet, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sort of gospel biographers, if that makes some sense. So the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels. Sin, not the stuff we try to avoid, but S-Y-N, meaning same, and optic, meaning eyes. In other words, they see the life of Christ through the same set of eyes. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. You almost get the sense he's in like a hurry. It's like he's writing his Gospel while snapping his fingers. One of the most often repeated words in the Gospel of Mark, immediately. Uh, He even actually basically skips the entire birth narrative of, of Christ. Like no Christmas in Mark's Gospel. Matthew and Luke, they give us the babe wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. But Mark, Mark stands up and Mark starts shouting among the first words out of his mouth, the time is fulfilled... The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark launches his whole thing, and this whole thing's all about the kingdom. The kingdom, that alternative reality, which is actually really reality. The kingdom where grace reigns and mercy rules and justice abounds. The kingdom where where all the wrongs are made right and all of our rights are subordinated to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The kingdom where the poor have all they need and and the hungry eat to their heart's content and the thirsty have plenty of water to drink, the kingdom. And it's in breaking, it's showing up in our lives here, now, today, in a blizzard. Uh, Listen with me to one moment of the kingdom breaking in. Jesus entered the synagogue. And there was a man there who had a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, come forward. And he came forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do harm or to do good on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill it? And they were silent. And he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored. And the Pharisees went away 
and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him that they might destroy him. Jesus went with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude followed him from Galilee because they'd heard the things that he was doing. A great number of people from uh, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. He ordered his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, because they kept pressing in on him to touch him so that they might not crush him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell before him and shouted, You are the Son of God! But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. He went up on a mountain, and he called to him those whom he wanted. And he named them apostles to be with him to be sent out to proclaim the message, to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the 12 and named them apostles. Simon, uh, whom he called Peter. Uh, James, son of Zebedee. And uh, John, the brother of James, whom he called Bonerges, (laughs) which means sons of thunder. Uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, Uh, James, son of Alphaeus, uh, Simon the Cananean, Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot, uh, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Mark 3, 1 through 19. If you wanted to find it in a Bible near you or maybe the smartphone you've got with you. Isn't that fascinating? Doesn't it just like to make the hair in the back of your neck stand up? I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus shows up to church on a Sunday morning. Okay, Saturday, synagogue, but just play with me, okay? Jesus shows up. He's gotten enough attention from the scribes and the Pharisees that when he walks in, they start paying attention. There's a man there with a withered hand. On most Sundays, we're just going to blow him off. We're just going to ignore him, just kind of shuffle him off into the corner. But on this Sunday, you have a sense there's going to be an encounter. I even actually wonder if the Pharisees didn't set it up. Bring the man with a withered hand just to see what Jesus would do on that Sunday. And Jesus, you get the feeling he knows what's happening. He looks at them with anger. Uh, By the way, I learned from some psychologist friends, anger is a secondary emotion representing a primary emotion. So whenever you're like angry, maybe take a little time to, to wonder through the anger to what's really going on. He looked at them with anger grieved. He was sad at their hardness of heart. And he says to the man, come forward. In other words, like, come on front. Come up into the lights. Everybody's watching now. The man comes forward, and he says to the man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out, and immediately it's restored. The kingdom, flourishing, wholeness, healing, health, thriving, the kingdom, And the Pharisees, they go out and immediately conspire with the Herodians against him in order to destroy him. They've just been confronted with the kingdom and the king of the kingdom, and they go out to bring it down. The Herodians were like a sect of Judaism that was loyal to Herod Antipas. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. The Pharisees thought the Herodians were traitors. But in this case, a convenient collaborator to bring down the Christ. 
was right there. And they missed him. The whole religious system they were a part of was was sort of bent towards this one. And he's right there. And they missed him. I was in Israel about 30 years ago, which is kind of hard to believe, with a guy named Ray Vanderlaan. Anybody heard of Ray Vanderlaan? Uh, Ray Vanderlaan, he sensitized me, really. It was the first time in my life where I became sort of sensitive to the Pharisees. Uh, we were up and down the mountains, in and out the valleys, meandering the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, if, if you've been on a trip with Ray, you can still hear him say, come, follow me, while he's like 100 yards down the road, and you're still trying to find your fanny pack. So you're, you're like running after him, and at some point somewhere, he, he sort of opens us to the possibility that maybe the Pharisees weren't as bad as we make them out to be. I mean, true enough, Jesus calls them a brood of vipers, which, not great, but they were trying, you know? They were working hard. They wanted to do good, mostly. They wanted to be good. They, they are the kinds of people who would come to church on a Sunday morning in a snowstorm. <laughs> that, was, that was a low blow. That was, I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just trying to like sensitize you. The, the, the Pharisees, they're, they're like, for fun, on Friday night, they would read the Bible and say their prayers. These guys loved the law. They kept the law. They wanted you to know it, too. They were trying so hard. The problem was they forgot why. They had so invested themselves in what? In the practices and the behaviors. They forgot why. And and I think it's a fair question for us to ask now. Why? Why are you here? Why? Why come to church in a snowstorm? Why read your Bible? Why say your prayers? Why give generally, generously to the mission and ministry of Pillar Church? Trust me, I want you to, but right now I'm just wondering, why would you? Why? Why, why forgive your friends and pursue reconciliation with your enemies? Why would you do that? I mean, life is hard enough. Why? They had forgotten Why? Simon Sinek, he's a leadership guy. He wrote a book titled uh, Start, Starts With Why. Uh, he says, uh, it all starts with clarity. You have to know why you do what you do. So I'm just wondering why. He was right there. He was right in front of them. And they missed it. They missed him. They conspired to destroy him. So I think it's fair for us now to ask, oh, did I tell you what Ray said on that trip to Israel? Uh, He said, most people in the church are more like Pharisees than they are like Jesus. Let's not forget why. I have a friend uh, who writes books like real ones, like the ones that get actually published by publishing companies. Like some people like me, like we self-publish. <laughs> this was like a real book. She, she writes books about God. Uh, a bunch of years ago when she was in college, she was uh, just in a dark place in faith. God was more absent than God was present. Uh, and she was trying so hard, she was reading her Bible to find the fix, saying her prayers to like, fix it, fix it, fix it. Uh, she reached out to a mentor, a guy named Eugene Peterson, Anybody know this name? 
You know what he said to her? I'm not, I'm not, this is not, I am not advising you this way. This is just what he said to her. He said to her, I think you should stop reading your Bible. This is the guy who translated it. <laughs> For six months, you read it like it's WebMD. Trying to diagnose and prescribe rather than for what it's written to engage the living God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ through the pages of scripture by the power of the spirit to reorient us to the kingdom that's why the story goes on there's a sort of interlude I guess Um, I think it's funny the, the, the Pharisees go out and conspire with the Herodians and you know what Jesus does He goes to the beach. (laughs) Jesus went with his disciples to the sea. And a whole bunch of people are pressing in on him. They're they're like, there's so many people who who they kind of have their why figured out. They they want flourishing. They want wholeness. They want healing. So they're pressing in on him. There's so many people. He orders the disciples to get a boat so that the people don't crush him. Even the unclean spirits, when they see him, fall before him and shout, You are the Son of God! It sounds like an accusation almost. And then Jesus goes up on a mountain. Uh, A lot of things in the Bible happen on mountains. Uh, Noah's ark on the mountains of Ararat at rest. And uh, Moses goes up to the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. And uh, Elijah hears the voice in the mountains. And Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. And there's this uh, hill called Calvary rewrites the script of the whole world. So whenever you're reading your Bible and you come upon, he went up to a mountain, pay attention, something is about to happen. He goes up on a mountain, and then there's this fascinating line. It says, he called to him those whom he wanted. Isn't that interesting? He called to him those whom he wanted. Now, to be clear, the Bible makes clear in the Gospel of Mark 2, God loves the whole world. Like, he made this whole thing. He spoke it into existence. He loves it. I mean, we're, like a bunch of us grew up in the Reformed tradition, we're pretty convinced we're just terrible. The Bible suggests you were made good. Yeah, things got real bad, but mostly God loves you so much, he wants to redeem you, to make you good because you began good. We, we have a tendency to make God out to be like a punitive, angry divine, you know? Like, out to get you which would, just bear with me now, that would be a little bit like saying Washington beat Michigan in the national championship because they scored more points in the second quarter. Mike, I think we should think about this for a minute. Don't, don't you agree? Let's just, let's just revel in this moment. That, you get my point? Yes, yes, it's in there, but the big picture, the whole story is God loves, which is what makes this line so interesting. It juxtaposed the love of God for the whole world, and he called to him those whom he wanted. He called 12, not to be exclusive, but to represent the fulfillment of the kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ and our participation in it. He wants you to participate. That's what it says. It says, uh, he he called those to himself whom he wanted to be with him, to be sent out to proclaim the good news, to have authority to cast out demons. That's what he wants. He wants to be with you. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe wants to be with you. I've been reading this book by David Brooks uh, titled How to Know a Person. 
This is just an interesting line. I'll get to my point in a minute. Uh, If you want to thrive in the age of AI, you better become exceptionally good at connecting with others. I just find that fascinating. He wants to be with you. Uh, Now more to my point. They say there's no such thing as an ordinary person. When you're beholding someone, you're seeing the richness of this particular human consciousness, the full symphony, how they perceive and create their life. He quotes, a lot of brilliant writers and thinkers don't have any sense for how people operate, the therapist and author Mary Pfeiffer once told me. To be able to understand people and be present for them in their experience, that's the most important thing in the world. He wants you to be with him, to be present with you, to be known by you. That's what he wants. And he wants to send you out to proclaim the message. He wants you to be a bearer of the good news. He wants you to be a herald of the goodness. That's what he wants. He wants you to participate in the work of the kingdom, the unfolding drama of salvation in the world. Uh, I've been reading this book titled When Everything is on Fire. The ethos of our age might be described as the felt absence of God. Something's been lost, and in the Western world, Christianity's in decline. Most denominations are losing membership, and the fastest-growing religious category in America is none. For believers who, in their anxiety and frustration, recklessly frame this phenomenon in culture war terms, this has produced considerable consternation. But their culture war-induced rage only adds fuel to the fire of post-Christian attitudes. Being angry with modern people for losing faith is like being angry with medieval people for dying of the plague. Something has happened in our time, just as something happened in the Middle Ages, that imperiled the lives of medieval people. Something has happened in late modernity that has imperiled the faith of modern people. If this is the ethos, if this is the cultural milieu of which we're a part, Christ wants a bunch of people, maybe just possibly on the corner of Ninth and College, to be sent out to bear witness to the goodness, to the better way. You know what I'm saying? That's what he wants. Wouldn't it be amazing if you had a conversation with Jesus and you were just able to, hey, Jesus, just what do you want from me? And he was like, well, um, Mark 3, he, I, I want you to be with me. I want you to go out and proclaim the message. And, here we go, to have authority to cast out demons. (laughs) What are we going to do with this? Cast out, we don't talk about demons. Demons. I mean, maybe we'll read about them and then kind of get on with it. Uh, So, in wise pastoral fashion, I'm going to borrow from C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors in which, into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So I'm going to let you talk about that over lunch. What I want you to notice, he's given you authority. You don't have to concede to the temptation. Christ has sent his spirit to reside in you. You can say no. You don't have to click the link. You don't have to participate in the rumor mongering. You don't have to borrow the boring scripts of our cultural moment, fighting and yelling and screaming. You don't have to do that. He's given you authority. 
to love and serve and give and be generous and kind and thoughtful. You know what I'm saying? I've got a new friend. met him a couple weeks ago. He's been hanging around the Pillar community. I'm going to call him Paul. He wants to profess his faith here. Uh, He wants to uh, be baptized here. And when that day comes, I'll let him tell you the full story and his real name. (laughs) For now, we'll just call him Paul. Paul made some very, very bad decisions. Uh, Like, real bad. Uh, Became homeless. uh, Had no job. uh, Lost his family. We, we, he's been hanging around here. We met, I think it was uh, Christmas Eve. And we're talking, and he's telling me some of his story. And he said to me, um, I loved to dance with Jack. And he could see the look on my face like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, the bottle. I loved to dance with Jack. Uh, and his life imploded. And he was without a home, and he was without a job, and he lost his family. And he hit bottom, like you do sometimes, and God met him in the bottom, and he met him there, and he reoriented his heart there to the kingdom, and he he said to me, "I, I, I loved to dance with Jack, and then he said, but now I dance with the king. Isn't that great? That's what Christ wants. That's what he wants, for you to be with him, to be sent out to proclaim, to have authority. Amen? Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.